Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Leadership Podcast. I'm really excited to share the conversation that I had with Stefan Gambart. It was awesome hearing how the world is moving towards virtual reality and what's happening within the industry and what's really yet to come within within VR. And it was interesting to hear the leadership qualities that are needed within the creative space and working with artistically skilled individuals. Before getting started, I want to say thanks to my media partners, IT World Canada, for the support of the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey, so welcome to the show, Stefan. Thank you. What I'm really eager today is to hear about your journey, about becoming a business leader in your experience, in your expertise, and within the VR, and being a VR expert. But before we get started, Stefan, for the listeners who may not know you, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you like to do? Sure. And thanks for having me on your show, Edwin. Um, so I'm a writer and creator and creative director. And I've been doing a lot of content development for mostly VR, but also for games and for television. And I have a background in animation and I've sort of worked my way up over the last 20 years and gone from traditional media into interactive media and now into this new medium, which is virtual reality. Would you consider yourself a hands-on geek as well? That's why you love to move oh, on to sure. there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. So I talk a lot about how I use my um, background. I have a bit of background from high school in um, improv theater. Uh, and I've used that um, paired with my skills as a dungeon master for Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games. And I found that those things really fit well together, uh, creating content for VR. So really. Quickly mention, for those out there, we're at the FITC Toronto conference, amazing conference about art, technology, design. And Stefan, you're here, you're presenting a lot about VR and frameless mm -hmm. concepts. For those who may not know, if you could just share with us what, what that all means, I mean, non-technical, and perhaps how it will change the way we look in the business world. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, virtual reality is a really exciting new medium. And uh, I've been exploring it from sort of the, the two ends. And what that means is, there's the, the interactive side of VR, which comes from games, and then there's the cinematic side, which comes from film and television. And it's my hypothesis that, that VR, like the native uh, content for VR, is actually going to be a, a melding of the two of those things. Just like how for television, it wasn't until we had the sitcom that we actually got away from that sort of vaudevillian stage performance that was just televised. So what I've been talking about this year is that frameless experience. And what I mean by that is... Our modern media uh, is all framed. It's all on screens. It's all in frames. It's all contained in such a way that there's a distance between the content and the audience, right? Like we sit in our living rooms and we watch television. We don't, we don't participate in the show, but that all goes away in VR. And VR is actually the first medium to, to eschew that frame. And when you're in VR, you're actually in the story worlds with the characters. And that's a very different experience from watching TV. It's kind of like the difference between watching soccer on television and playing in a soccer game. And those are two very different things. So we've never had fictional content that is 
placed in such a way that the audience is in it is is inside of that content or at least in in most like mass media we haven't had that type of content so i think that has a drastic change for storytelling yeah i mean I, as you were talking stefan my my imagination was just running wild and I'm thinking about video games. I'm thinking about how, how these video games morphed into today's storytelling and, and how much more VR world will really get the gamer right into that. Is it, would I be correct to say that the gaming world is the one that's bringing the VR to life at this point? I think right now, um, like I said, if there is cin- cinematic stuff, a lot of 360 video, a lot of documentaries being filmed for VR games fit in VR very naturalistically. So I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of early adoption on the gamer side, probably more so than on the the cinematic side, because it's a much easier sell to gamers to buy the head, the headgear, the head mounted displays and the computers that they need to run VR. And that interactivity, that agency that you have in a game is really important for virtual reality because as human beings, we've only ever existed in one reality. I mean, this sounds like hippie, heady stuff. But what I mean is when you're sitting in a room and you're interacting with that room, it's real and you're there and that's your experience. Uh, and when you're watching a television show, you again, like you're apart from it. Or when you're playing a game on a screen, you're apart from it. But at least in a game, we sort of become the protagonist. We're used to that sort of effect of being the person who's in the content, uh, which is something that we don't really have in film. We watch actors, we don't really become them. And there's not a lot of first person movies out there. So for VR, I think that early adoption is very easy for a gamer because they, they're already used to that sort of storytelling, that sort of aspect of being a character. So yeah, I think games will probably be our, our, our best entry point, um, at this, at this level. And then also from the 360 video, sort of Facebook for, for more of a, a broader market approach. I see. So Facebook and a lot of these new medias. Yeah. I could foresee using this 360 videos at events itself, like even at FITC, for example, having a virtual view of of what's happening on stage. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's a lot of early applications for both the the sort of gaming aspects and for the, the 360 video shoot and 3D 360 video shoots. But again, like I think we're, we're moving, those are like, very, very shallow experiences. I mean, taking a game and just putting it in VR is a very simple thing to do, but I mean, it's not taking full advantage of what, what people can experience in VR. And in my opinion, what games lack is the story of cinema and what cinema lacks is the interactivity of games. So where I think we're headed is a genre or a, a type of content that has the agency of games and the interactivity of games, but applies that to the story of cinema. So that's not just about gameplay interspersed with cutscenes, but it's actually gameplay where the game is interactive storytelling. And that's, again, where improv and Dungeons & Dragons comes into play. Right. I mean, it's it's really <laughs> the image that just came up, Stefan, was, was the holodeck. I'm really in oh, there. Oh, for sure. I'm really in there in some made-up world, but I'm the one judging what's happening and there may be actors in there whether they're real or not yeah but uh it's me dictating which way i go which way the story goes and i'm always referring to westworld as as a as a good example of what it's like you just replace the idea of robots with virtual characters and then you've got basically where i think vr is headed now we're we're still years away from this because this is going to take machine learning and artificial intelligence that just doesn't have we don't have that level of sophistication yet 
but we will eventually. So I think what my talks are meant to do is, is to inspire the creative side. Like I understand from the development side that, that programmers like this is light years away, but if we don't start thinking about how to reframe how we tell stories and not focus so much on dictating plot and character arcs and that sort of thing that, that cement the story in stone and don't allow for that type of interaction with the audience, right? We want our audience to be able to take control. And that's something that you learn in improv and you learn in, in, in D and D where you can't just tell the story that you want to tell, but you can tell it through themes and you can tell it through options, right? And you let the, the players or the protagonists of the story sort of decide the plot. Well, I mean, this, this stuff just really <laughs> blows my mind. I love it. I'm really excited. Uh, me being from a technical background, this stuff is so cool. And I'm really excited to see it mature and, and really gain traction outside of just the gaming and see how, where the applications really come from. And, and from what you're saying is there could be just a whole brand new genre that we haven't thought of today in five years. Something just might come out of, I mean, we're telling people this is what it may be, but who knows, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the, the, before the invention of, of film or TV, I mean, we had books and we had radio, right? But, but radio dramas didn't survive in their form intact when they moved over to, to film, right? I mean, we had to change the way we told stories. And I'm, I mean, the visual language of, of film, cinematography, it took a hundred years to develop that, right? So it's interesting to see how the first films we had were very much um, like the Lumiere brothers sticking a camera at a train station to film a train coming in. Right. And now for VR, we have people sticking 360 degree cameras in Times Square to just film what's happening. And it's that same sort of experimentation. We're like, well, we know how to film stuff. We just, how do we tell a story? Because it's a different, it's a different space. We're not going to tell the same story in VR that, or tell the story in VR the same way we would tell it in film or the, the way we would tell it on radio. Wow, I mean, this this is stuff so cool, and and I could probably you and I could probably talk about this for hours. Absolutely, <laughs> especially having someone like yourself who's really immersed in this technology. But it's great. But I I really want to get back to you in terms of your business leadership. And what I always find fascinating is is to hear how some of today's business leaders had to make changes to transform where they are today and what you're doing today. So, what would you say was the biggest turning point in your career? Hmm. Well, I, it, this actually goes back quite a ways, but um, like I said before, I started my career out in, in animation, and I was always an illustrator as a kid and a, and a sort of a visual storyteller, and I was working in animation, I was doing film and television, and then I got in, involved with animation for games. Now, this is ages ago. This is like 2D, hand-drawn uh, animation for games for kids, but I got really interested in the sort of interactive experience of it and it reminded me of the, the dungeons and dragons and it reminded me of, of of improv and i also realized at that point that for me it was all about the story and that i had become an illustrator and an animator because the way that i told stories was visually and it was through drawing things rather than writing words and when i made that realization that not only did i want to be more a story storyteller than an illustrator even though i still have those skills and love using them story comes first. And then the fact that I wanted to make it an interactive story, I didn't just want to be a writer, I wanted to be someone who created games who created interactive fiction. And I really got involved in, in sort of digital storytelling. And that really changed things for me, I went off off of the, the animation track and started going down to this, this interactive route. And I don't think I would have ended up in VR if it hadn't been for that, because 
I was able to adapt the visual skill set that I had to something that was more interactive, which I was able to adapt again into VR. And now I'm finding that all those skills that I've had, all those, those sort of minor career path adjustments, they're all still meaningful. They all still have uh, validity in what I'm doing today. I'd love to find out more about how you grew as a leader. I know currently right now you're You've gone solo, you're a freelancer, but in the past you've had teams mm-hmm. that you're leading and managing. I'd love to know how, how you had to adjust yourself and build yourself as an effective leader, and especially in this space where it may or may not be different in, in other industries. Right. So my leadership role was always with the creative department. So I'm always working with creatives. And there's a lot of certain things for creatives that that's particular to, to them, to, to creatives and what we need to succeed. And a lot of that has to do with critique, right? It's, it's really hard to let go of the things that you are building when, uh, when the client comes in with feedback and you learn very quickly that you can't take it personally. You have to learn how to love your work and be excited about your work, but also be willing to let go when somebody else wants something different. One of the things that's so interesting about, but in the interactive space is that no one does this alone. Nobody can, can encompass all the expertise that's needed to make virtual reality by themselves. You have to work with other people. You have to collaborate. And again, that's, that's for me comes from improv. You know, when you're on stage and you're acting, you have to create a story in character with five other people and you have to go with what their suggestions are because if they've acted them out on stage, it's part of the story. And that's the, the improv principle of yes. And so you don't say no to anything. If someone makes a suggestion, you move forward with it. Right. So that kind of openness and that willingness to collaborate has always been really important to me. And it's sort of what's made me become more of a frontline leader. I like to get in with the team and do the work and lead by example and lead by, by companionship really. And I think that, the other side of that is also um, I'm always willing to listen and analyze uh, situations and be very objective about things. It's it's very easy to help uh, mentor your staff uh, in terms of where the project is going. That's like the daily stuff. Like I can help you get this project to where it needs to be. But I think it's very important to be mindful of your team's career goals. And they're very individual. Like you can't just have a blanket policy or a, like approach to how you're going to help your team develop because everyone needs different things. And that's where the listening comes in. And that's where you have to be able to, to almost bef- like you have to be friends with these people. You can't, you can't be a part, you can't be a leader who just stands above everyone and, and people look up to and, and they can't relate to. So for me, people are people and it, doesn't really matter what kind of job or what kind of role they're in. You have to understand their needs and their wants, and then you have to be very genuine in how you address their their career and their mentorship. Oh no, that's. Uh, I mean, you you hit upon so many points there in terms of listening, leadership, and you know, rolling rolling up your sleeves. But I'm really interested to know. I have a, I have a lot of creative friends, a lot of artists, and I can't even imagine myself really getting down with people who are very passionate about their mm-hmm. ideas. Right. Like uh, where there are situations where there was conflict and, and you, oh, had yeah. to, and you yeah, have yeah. to overcome that, like in those challenges. So, so here's he, what I, what I talked to my team about with that level of passion is I say, we need it. We absolutely want it. I like to work with people who have differences of opinions from, from what I have, or people have differences of opinions from others. 
because if everyone just agrees on the same thing, you're not getting opposing points of view and it's, it's, it's stifling. Like it just means that you're going to be creating the same stuff over and over again. I like creating or I like collaborating with people from different disciplines. You know, sometimes my strongest um, collaborator on a project will be a developer or will be a producer because even though I work very well with the, the artistic team, I like to collaborate with people who have uh, different goals for the project and have, have different agendas and also have different viewpoints, right? So um, when, when we have people who are so passionate and they come to the project and they have a very passionate and very specific point of view for where the project should go, I always tell them to be the advocate for that, that approach. Like be that advocate and, and fight us. Like if you think that that's the right way to go and you think that what we're doing is wrong, then say that and keep going. And, and we need that candor because eventually we'll get to a point where we have a compromise from either end and we get the best project, right? It's that tension between the differences of opinions that actually make the project better. Now, of course, you have to temper that. You can't have people get frustrated because no one's listening to their ideas, which is on everyone to listen, right? And And accept all the ideas that come to the table. And then everyone just has to work together and understand that I can pitch my idea to the team. And if it's the best idea, it'll win. But if it's not, if I have to compromise or if we can mutate that idea to something that works better, I have to live with that. And coaching your staff to understand that, that this is a team effort and it's about the project and not about the individual. And making sure that you just keep office politics out of that type of thing uh, is really, really important. And that's why we've always had really great brainstorming sessions. I love I love to ask on, on my podcast and my guests um, when it comes to – what you're reading, whether it's business development, <laughs> business leadership, or or new strategies on Dungeon D and D, what are you currently reading right now? Oh boy, um, so I'm I'm far behind on my nonfiction list. Um, fiction wise, I'm I'm trying to get through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Um, there's 41 books, and I'm maybe a quarter of the way through, so it's going to take me some time. But on the nonfiction side, the book that I'm currently slowly getting through is called um, uh, From the Vatican to Vegas. That's by Norman Klein. Uh, and it's a, a very interesting book about how we build these – like the Vatican and Vegas, how we build spaces to, ha- to elicit emotional reactions from people. So it's almost like a scripted space. It's this idea that an environment can tell a story. And uh, I was put onto this book by a friend, and I realized that it probably has a lot of interesting tidbits of information for virtual reality. Because virtual reality is all about being in a place. So if we can get that that environment, that place to tell a story, then... All that archi- architecture back in the Vatican days, it's definitely... T- it's just you go there and it's... It's breathless. Yeah, yeah, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah. It's breathless. Um, I guess because you're not really up to your nonfiction, but you're really <laughs> hands-on. I mean, if I could ask you, if there was one aspect of your leadership you can improve, what mm. would it be at this point of your career? So for me right now, it's being able to retain that sort of casual leadership style. Um, I'm very concerned about losing the ability um, – to speak to team members and have them see me as a peer and not as just a leader. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with just candor. Creativity Inc. is another great book. It's about the rise of Pixar and candor is one of the the core concepts of that book. Uh, It's by Ed Catmull. 
And I always loved what he had to say about this sort of obfuscation of problems within the company of Pixar that the leadership don't see because the teams look at the leadership as the them. It's the us versus them, right? So they don't want to be candid with leadership because they're worried about what that might look like. And I'm always telling people that I work with on my teams that if you're frustrated or if there's problems, like talk to people. Like it's not a, that's not a problem. Frustration is usually a sign of passion and it shows that you care about the projects and care about the company. So it, it's important for those things to be sh- shared with leadership because if, if we don't know about it, then, then it doesn't exist, right? And we can't address it. It's, it's amazing. And I hear that a lot now when I speak to a number of leaders and, and they talk about the importance of transparency. I had mm-hmm. one guest talking about, I'll share with my team what happened on the board meeting. So yeah. it's, it's, so my team knows exactly what's happening and this is why we're doing things and this is why I do that. And, and, and I'm really, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it seems to be a really good key of, of amazing business leaders today. Fun question. If I were to ask some of your team members what the best leadership skill mm. you, you possess, what do you think they would say at this point? Um, I'm hoping that they, uh, they see that I have a genuine interest in their career development. Um, more often than not, I will give realistic advice that sometimes might be counter to things that I need from, from staff members, but I know that they need to hear. Uh, it's more important to me to keep staff and team members happy in the long run than it is to sort of like grind them on projects. Because the work that I do, I can't do alone. I need team members to do it with. And I need them to trust me as much as I trust them. Right. And then we have, when we have that relationship and that's, again, that comes down to that friendship and that candor that I can get from them. Uh, then I think we have a stronger team. It's just like improv or sports. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you've got to, you've got to carry each other. You've got to support each other and lift each other up. So there has to be genuine, um, excitement for when one of your team members, uh, excels. Uh, right. And then there has to be genuine help that's given to them when they are, when they're faltering. So yeah, with the highs, you got to be with them at the highs and the lows. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I've always tried to be very, very candid in the level of, of advice I give. And I mean, if a team member needs to hear that, that they are doing a good job, I'll let them know. And if they need to hear that they need some improvement, I can give them that advice and not make them feel like garbage or not make them feel like they're being uh, devalued. Right. They, they need to understand that criticism doesn't necessarily reflect poorly on them. It just means that I'm pointing out a, a level of or an area where they can improve. Yeah, right. I, I, and do you find the longer you are in these type of roles that you're getting better at, at being more candor at this point? Yeah. Like, like I said, it's something that I'm afraid of losing. And I think that the, that fear comes from the fact that it's not really something that's in my control. If people see me as a leader type that they don't want to open up to, then that's what they'll see. And I, I need to sort of focus on how I can get them to understand that I'm not unapproachable. Right. So I, that's why I'm always trying to give real advice and, and not just about the work that we're doing, but like about anything, you know, I want to be helpful. And then when they see that I'm being helpful and I'm being genuine, I think that then that helps them open up more awesome. because that yeah. builds that trust. It could be a fine balance uh, of what you're trying to achieve to, to be that effective leader that, that you are already and continue to as well. But I, Stefan, I'm, I'm having a great time. 
and especially with the VR and really learning how how the creatives work and, and how you're able to put them together and ensure that everyone's happy and you're keeping your passions together and and just 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 getting things done. But before we end, I'd love to get maybe some of your final thoughts, some observations, or or perhaps any actionable recommendations for the creative sure. types who, who are maybe looking to move into a leadership role like Absolutely. yourself. Um, so I have this, this analogy that I always use uh, for designers and art directors, and I talk about um, your toolbox. And I say that when you're a designer, you have a toolbox, and you've just graduated from school, and you've got some, some basic tools in there that you've learned in school. And as you get experience in the working world, your toolbox grows. And then you get to this point where you are an awesome designer. You're really good at what you do. And you want to make that next step to art director. But what you have to understand is that you've got this amazing toolbox of design skills right now. And when you move to being an art director, you, half those that's going to be half your toolbox. The other half is going to be about direction. It's no longer going to be just the design. It's the direction side. And that part of your toolbox is now empty because you haven't done it. You're a great designer, but you haven't directed anyone yet. So now you've got to fill that toolbox again. And often that jump from, from designer to art director leaves some people cold because they, they feel like they're not as good as they were six months ago when they were just a designer. And they have to understand that it's because they're using new skills, they're developing leadership, and they're developing direction, right? And what you want to avoid is finding like, oh, well, I don't really know what I, how to do this or I'm frustrated and you might not even understand why you're frustrated. It's because you're trying to use a skill set that you don't have fully developed yet. And then the instinct is just to fall back into our comfort zone, to go to that side of the toolbox that I know. And what happens is you have your, your art director saying, I'll just design it. I'm just going to, I'll just do this. And that's not only bad for them because now they're taking on more responsibility, but they're also leaving their designer out in the cold because now their designer's not doing the, the work that they're supposed to do. So it's all about understanding where your limits are, understanding what you need to learn, never being afraid to ask for help, right? Like an art director should always come up to a, a creative director and say, like, I'm having issues here. What do I do? And uh, as a creative director, I always look at the, the leadership side first. Because when I became a creative director from an art director, the same thing happened again. Half my toolbox was taken out. Now I have to work on my skills for developing the business and developing the overall art or creative direction of the company. So it's, it's the sort of like growing toolbox and, and growing skill set that needs to be uh, accommodated. Oh man, I, that must have been the best visual explanation I could ever awesome. got, Stefan. That was great. <laughs> I mean, I might have to use that when I talk about Do leadership and, and people transforming or within transition into a different role, whether it's technical or into a, a managerial role or into some type of leadership to just empty toolbox. And this is the thing, like I've talked to, I've talked to designers before and there's this misconception that the, the, career path is I have to become an art director and you don't, you could stay a designer your entire life and just become an amazing specialist, right? It's like people are worried too much about these titles. Uh, I talk to them about specific uh, motion artists and I say, well, these guys are, they're freelance, they're specialists and they do like the titles to game of thrones, right? They're not art directors. They don't direct anybody. They do the work, right? Well, some of them are, have their own companies now and have become directors, but as freelancers and as freelance specialists, that's what they do. And they're just really, really good at their craft. 
And if that's like, I've had designers who said, well, I want to be an art director because I want the next step in my career. And I always have to say, is that, is that what you want? Do you want to be a person who directs others? I knew I was ready to become a, a creative director when I was art directing a project. And I really wanted to do this illustration for, uh, um, concept art stuff. And I was like, I haven't done illustration in a while. I really want to do this, but I know I don't have time. I have too many projects. So what I ended up doing was I found a concept artist that I'd worked with before. I knew he'd be perfect for the role. I gave him the references for the art style that I was looking for. And I worked together with him to get the concept art that I needed. And I got as much out of that as I would have had I done it myself. And it, it felt like a really good accomplishment. I realized that's, that's what it means to move up to that next level. You're not just the person who does the work anymore. You're the person who gets other people to do the work that you need. And then you, it's like the, the, um, uh, Steve Jobs quote of, I'm not, I'm not, I don't play the instrument. I play the orchestra. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and, and the key point there on the closing was just learning how to delegate properly is, Absolutely. is, is the number one thing as, as, as any effective manager or leader is entrust, entrusting them. And if there's one last piece of advice that yes. I could give to, to the actual people who are in leadership roles right now is to look at your team as potential alumni. I think that this is a really interesting and important point of view. Because I talk about the best students at Stanford or Columbia, what happens to them? They leave. They're gone. They leave the college. And the, and the college's task is to make sure that they leave with the best possible skills, but also with the best possible experience. So that when they're out in the working world and they talk about their experience at Stanford or, or Columbia, they talk about it in the best possible way. So in my opinion, when you're working in a creative field, you're usually working with with people that are, are very hungry, are very passionate about the work that they do, and maybe more so than in other careers, eventually will want to leave and start their own thing or go freelance. And the best possible thing you can do is not stifle that, but to understand that when they go out there, you just want them to be able to remember their time at your company as being something that was formative, helpful, and that they will only ever say the best things about you. I feel bad that we have to go to a close. So, Stefan... If you could please share with us how we could get more information about you, how we could get contact of the stuff you're doing, and perhaps when your board games will be out. For sure. So I'm on. I've got a portfolio on Behance. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of using Twitter. Still am at least uh, because that's how I've really uh, jump started my career was through getting in touch with people on on Twitter. So I'm always reachable there. I have a website. It's stefangrambart.ca. Uh, it's going through a bit of a rejuvenation right now, but uh, that's where you'll find me. And uh, I'm not so sure what's going to happen with those games, but I'm looking at Kickstarter right now. Awesome. Well, Stefan, thank you for joining the Business Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the episode. What, a, what, what an amazing chat. Can you tell that I was so excited and intrigued to learn about the amazing world of virtual reality. If you're interested in learning more about Stefan, VR, and any of the resources that he mentioned, go to my website. You could go directly to the episode by going to thebusinessleadership.com slash 016. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out directly via email to edwin at thebusinessleadership.com. And we're currently surveying our listeners just to learn more about you. So please take a few minutes, visit our website, and, and click the survey link found on the homepage. Thank you again, and until next time, 
Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.